The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. My guest on today's episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is Paul Coggins, founding CEO at Ludio, a revolutionary mobile advertising platform with a unique approach they call sensory ad science that delivers 10x results compared to uh, traditional mobile advertising solutions. And now uh, Adludio, funded by Borderton, have scaled up teams across three continents and they've delivered ad campaigns in over 70 countries for blue chips like Unilever, Nestle and PayPal. And they're delivering 40% month on month revenue growth, which is truly awesome. Adludio were nominated a couple of months ago in the Sunday Times Tech Track as one of the top 10 rising technology companies to watch out for the future. So Paul, sounds like you and Adludio are firing on all cylinders. Welcome to the Startup to Scale Up game plan. Thank you very much, Gary. Great to be here. Yeah, looking forward to talking about our journey. Absolutely. Me too. So let's go back to the beginning of the journey. What inspired you and your co-founders to set up Adludio? Well, I've been in ad tech now for about, oh, over 20 years. I was selling kind of banners right back in the um, early 1990s. And I've done a series of startups ever since. When I looked at the way advertising was about five years ago on mobile, in many ways, the ads that you were getting were completely unmemorable. I often start by asking people a kind of question, what is your most memorable ad on TV? And pretty much uniformly, everybody would have an answer, whether it was a Guinness ad or a Coca-Cola. There's always something that kind of triggers some sort of inner memory with people. And yet, if you ask people five years ago what the most memorable ad was on a mobile, you would always get a blank. And there's pretty much a reason for that. Sort of TV is very much a kind of sit-back, passive medium. You're engaging with it, but you're sitting back, and it has huge reach as well. Whereas mobile, very different. It's touch, it's swipe, it's interaction. So we thought we needed to start developing creatives and ads that kind of fitted the way that we use the mobiles today. And that was our starting point. So really delivering really brilliant creative on mobile devices that get consumers to engage. Awesome. So sensory ad science sounds like a Black Mirror episode. What exactly is sensory ad science and what's the extent that you can say this in public? What's behind your secret sauce? So... Because of the way people interact with their phones, which is very much tied, uh, touch and it's that swipe and it's that interaction, we built a technology that essentially allows us to tap into the functionality of the phone when delivering ads. While we were doing this and while we were starting to deliver some campaigns, we came out with some pretty startling stats, which was our approach to delivering advertising was up to 10 times more memorable than, for instance, a standard 30-second video. 
And we looked into this, and there was actually genuinely some science behind it, which is kinesthetic learning. So, you know, think about it when you are a child. You learn by doing. You learn by internalizing what you're actually playing with. And it's exactly the same process going on when you physically engage with an ad. You internalize that message. So in many ways, it sounds pretty straightforward and it makes total sense. If you're just scrolling past something, you're not going to particularly take it in. You've got that banner blindness, if you want. But if you're engaging with something, you're memorizing it and your recall is going to be that much higher. And at the end of the day, that's kind of what brand advertising is all about. You want people to have a positive recollection of your brand in order that you take them into that marketing channel and that marketing funnel. And that's really where we've kind of doubled down. It's about focusing on delivering brilliant creative at the top part of that funnel on mobile devices in order that people recall and memorize that brand message. And as we progress, we've learned more. So we've been doing this about five years now, and we've collected billions of points of data around how consumers engage with ads, not necessarily who. So, and this is, a, for me, quite a, you know, a very interesting sort of facet of what we're doing in that over the last five or more years, ad tech has concentrated very much on who the person is. So, you know, what you're doing, where you are, what your behavior is, et cetera. But in a post-GDPR world, that kind of personal privacy and data become, is going to become increasingly harder for people to use to target. What we've got is billions of lines of data around how people engage. So not the who, but the how. And that's allowing us now to start creating ads before consumers have engaged with them that we know are going to lead to increased and enhanced results. So it's a journey we're on. It's a journey that we started on about delivering brilliant creative. And it's one that we're continually evolving to give advertisers better results and consumers a better experience. Are there some dangers further down the line in the same way that Facebook has been accused of helping certain political regimes achieve their aims through manipulating consumers. Are there dangers as you become more successful and more effective with your secret sauce that you run into some of those same political issues? So we're not taking any data around the individual and the consumer. So that, that's kind of a unique place to be in. Now, we do use targeting data, but it's always through third parties. So a Google or another media trading desk where we're delivering the ads ourselves. But as a business, we don't hold any personal data whatsoever. So the tech that we're building is completely agnostic around who that consumer is. But we're getting some very unique pointers. So does a consumer who is 18 to 25 swipe, swipe left or right? Is there a difference between finance ads and automobile ads? What creative works best for what individual? 
what is the dwell time for a particular ad unit or dwell time on an ad for a particular vertical. So I don't think we will come into those areas that you were talking about because for us, again, it's the creative. It's not who that person is. It's more about how they're consuming that advertising. I'm curious as to what would happen if one of the major political parties did engage you and if, hypothetically, if Dominic Cummings came to you to use your technology to help with the next general election or the next referendum, would that be something that you as a business would take on because it's revenue and it's an interesting project? Or would that be something you'd prefer to avoid because getting involved in the political arena gets controversial, whether you're leaning left or right, remain or leave? Sure. I mean, really good question. The best way I can kind of answer that, I suppose, is... I don't think in many ways we would be making those decisions. They're almost made for you. So, for instance, we're very active in Hong Kong at the moment. We're running a number of um, ad campaigns through our creators for a number of luxury brands, so Cartier, Bulgari, etc. They're exceptionally keen that they don't appear in any way next to any news about the protests. So we're... I guess, ourselves having to ensure that we're adhering to those brands' requests about blocking any ad units appearing on any third-party website to do with the protests. So we do, I guess, what I'm saying there is we are taking some kind of censorship internally already Would we run campaigns around the Brexit-type events? Maybe. Well, we're running some for the government at the moment. And yes, if it's revenue, we would probably take it. Do I think it's unethical, which I guess is the question you're asking? I don't think so, because again, we're not taking personal data. We're merely presenting the consumers with an advertising creative that they can engage with or not. We don't force consumers to engage with our ads. Everything is opt-in. So if the message is strong enough and it's targeted right, they should do. And with our kind of secret source around the creative, we would get a much higher engagement rate than might otherwise be the case. But... It's not something I've come up against right, right at the moment. And I guess when it, if it does arise, it's something we'll have to think about. Could be an interesting uh, <laughs> decision for you and your team. But let's move yeah. on from that. You mentioned Hong Kong just a few moments ago. You've scaled really quickly internationally. You've launched in multiple locations in Europe, Asia, North America. What drove that pace of expansion and what lessons have you learned? I guess we decided to go overseas around 2016, a lot sooner than would otherwise be the case. And that was driven in part by the Brexit result. So we were unsure as to how the economy in the UK would perform over the coming years. And that accelerated our move um, overseas. So the first place we went to actually was Singapore. Singapore, because... There was less competition because 
It's a very easy legal system and banking system in order to go and open up. And because we saw APAC as very much a region that we wanted to tap into, it's been a huge success for us. On the back of that, we opened up into Hong Kong, which again, very easy legal system, a very easy financial system. There's hardly any taxes over there, no corporation tax, VAT, non-existent income tax at about 15%. So opening up an office there with only one director, actually, doesn't even have to be in Hong Kong, very easy. At the same time, we've opened up in the US. The US, because it's a huge market, clearly. However, complicated doesn't even begin to do justice to opening up in that market. It's painful in the extreme, but you know the rewards are that much better. So you know you've got to look at multiple tax systems. You've got to decide very clearly where you're going to base yourself. So we're in New York and LA. That in itself means two different personnel structures, two different laws that we have to adhere to. So the US, hugely important for us, but clearly very problematic and very expensive as well. So you need to have reasonably good-sized deep pockets in order to open up that. The last place we opened up almost recently, actually, is France, almost as a backstop because of Brexit. I'd say France is actually the most paperwork, literally piles and piles of paperwork. Opening up a bank account was incredibly onerous. But we're there now, and we have a kind of post-EU base. Going forward, we're looking at slightly more tricky markets. So we're excited about the opportunities in Shanghai. My head of Apex moved to Taiwan. We have a channel partner agreement now in Cape Town for Africa. And we also have one in Dubai. So we've pretty much got a really good global coverage. We haven't yet looked at the LATAM. And that's an area that I'm struggling to look at at the moment, trying to work out how you can take money out of places like Brazil and Argentina. The Brazilian market is huge for mobile. I think it's one of the biggest markets in the world for likes of WhatsApp. Yeah, I mean, and that's what excites me about that market. As with all of these kind of market entries, what we try to do is get some activity and clients first either through a consultant or somebody on the ground. Now, in the case of Brazil, we really need to take some of the money out that we get paid. And that's when you come into issues around withholding taxes. So, yes, it's an enormous market. But I'll be honest, I haven't yet worked out the best way to crack it. That's a 2020 challenge. And I guess another 2020 challenge based on our previous conversations, well, 2019 and 2020 challenge, is your transition towards SaaS. Walk me through that. What are the challenges around shifting your model to a SaaS model? What's driven that approach and how are you tackling those challenges? Well, I mean, firstly, why move from SaaS and what have we got at the moment? So at the moment, our revenue growth has been driven by campaign activity. We're very good at it. We have had huge success going global. And we work with a number of large advertisers and advertising agencies. However, the money is campaign-led. 
And that is an issue because it doesn't give you any stability or reoccurring revenue. And you're constantly fighting for new money, new pitches, new money, new pitches. So that ultimately means that come an exit, which any business like ours wants, the exit values on those type of businesses are a lot lower than they are on those that are SaaS and have recurring revenue streams. So from a purely financial perspective, it makes a lot of sense to look to see if we can start building our tech and taking what we've got so far and offering it to brands on a much more of a SaaS monthly recurring revenue basis. Now, that has challenges in our market, not least because of the way advertising works, which is predominantly campaign-driven. So if you are a large company, I mentioned Cartier or Bulgari earlier, a lot of their ad spend might well be in Q4 when people are buying gifts, and it tails off in Jan, Feb, March. So the challenge for us as a business is twofold. It's to convince advertisers to sign up to our platform and pay for a 12-month recurring platform fee basis, which in itself is not easy. And then the, the second challenge is to ensure that the product that we are giving them answers a lot of their needs and goes beyond just, for instance, serving them a, a very strong creative. So we're in the process of that transition at the moment. We've had some great success and we've had some kind of knockbacks. But driving the revenue from what I would call our media business will continue because that is the bread and butter of the business. It's got us where we are today. And importantly, every creative that we build and deliver, we're creating that data again about the how. And that data can power the platform as we start coming up with far more automation of the creative, automation of the algorithms that optimize the campaigns. So it's an interesting time, but one that, and a challenge that we're, we're well up for. You're up for the challenge. From a talent perspective, as you've made that shift or you're in the process of making that shift, are there implications there in terms of sales, product management, the perspectives being different, the sales cycles being different? Are there issues in terms of the talent that you already had in place not being the same or not having the same skills that you need to be effective in a SaaS world? Very much so. We pride ourselves on having an excellent sales team. And we have brilliant salespeople in each geography and each country. However, a SaaS salesperson is a different beast. As you say, the sales cycles are a lot longer. They need to be a lot more consultative and a lot more have a bit more perseverance in that sales process than a kind of campaign-driven person. So there's that element to it. More importantly, we need to kind of rethink the whole approach that we take to the business. So up until you know, a year ago, we hadn't really marketed ourselves, which in many ways is strange for what is a marketing business, but we didn't have a marketing team in place. In order to drive the leads 
for more of a SaaS-based business, we need to massively increase our profile and start driving incoming leads. Now, that means, again, a rethink of the business. So, you know, we've hired a marketing manager. We've hired a content marketing manager. We're hiring a global marketing director. So all of those are new hires, all with a new way of thinking about performing lead generations for the business. We're starting to do a lot more events. So we have internal events. We have one in a couple of weeks where we were inviting lots and lots of brands to come in and discuss the opportunities beyond social, because a lot of what they're doing at the moment is tapping into social budgets. And we're saying, look, there's a much bigger world of opportunity out there. So that's a different approach. And that, of course, does mean extra investment as well. So, yeah, very much. I mean, the way I see it sometimes is we are a startup within a startup or a startup within a scale-up. That is a challenge as well because you've got, while we're building the same thing, you do have two slightly competing requirements, both from a dev and a product and a sales and a marketing perspective. So coordinating those is a challenge. Do you think it's the SaaS side of the business scales that you may actually need to structure Adludio as two separate business units with their own management teams, their own sales marketing teams, etc.? Yes. Right at the start when we decided we were going on this journey, you know, we even thought about having two separate brand names, one being the kind of media business which was almost like the first client of the platform business. We decided not to go down that route because Adludio has brand equity now. And if anything, we want to capitalize on that brand equity and build on it. However, do we need to have two separate business units? Almost certainly, yes. And we kind of are in that process of doing that already. And that, for instance, starts in the tech. So we've divided our technology department into three very clear divisions. So we have a data division, and they are specifically tasked with building data, creative data products for our platform. We have our innovation department, which is, again, very different because it's building out new formats and new innovation around the creative side of things. And then we have much more of our platform and our product so, for instance, we're building a new studio at the moment, which has something called a finite state machine, which will allow us to or allow any designer to build multiple interactions within one ad unit without the need for any coding, etc. And these are all big technical advances. And I haven't even mentioned the kind of algorithm and the data science part of the business. So as you scale, there is a need to start defining all the departments in a lot of greater detail. Two or three years ago, as we were more starting on this journey, the tech team was just one. Now it's like four separate divisions. With all these challenges and changes and the evolution towards a SaaS business or, or perhaps the two complementary business units, do you have any mentors who are helping you to overcome these challenges and keep on track? Mentors is a good thing. And we do have an advisory board. Now, that advisory board 
is made up of a lot of ad tech experience. So frankly, I need to go out and get some more advisors who've got more SaaS type experience. We don't have a chairman at the moment for our business. So that's something that I'm definitely on the lookout for as well. Somebody that can add value in that kind of SaaS capacity. What I do do is we attend events with other CEOs where you kind of uh, sort of talk about what issues are ongoing in order that we can bat ideas backwards and forwards. And that's been a huge benefit, I think, to me and not something that I thought would be. Direct mentors, though, somebody that, you know, you can pick up the phone to. There are a few investors that I speak to on a regular basis that we can also chat to. I wish I had more. I'm constantly on the lookout. At the same time, I'm a mentor for other people. Some of these younger um, startups are looking for people that might have been on the journey that we've been on over the last few years. And I'm always happy to talk about some of the pitfalls to avoid and some of the good things um, that people should tap into. Talking of mentors, if you were to mentor your younger self, what's the one thing you've discovered since you became a tech entrepreneur that you'd love to be able to go back in time and uh, advise or infuse your younger self about? I think go for it a bit earlier. (laughs) So I've worked in a series of startups. I did one right back in 2000 where I was kind of launching an e-commerce business. And I perhaps pulled away from that a little bit too early. We had good traction in year one. And then I thought, oh, you know, it's 2002, it's the dot-com crash. Forget it. But in many ways, that was the time I should have been putting my foot to the pedal because that's when the most opportunities were coming to fruition. So I think my advice to myself would be keep going, keep at it, and do more earlier. And my advice to up-and-coming entrepreneurs is do it earlier. There's nothing wrong with failure. In fact, failure is a prerequisite of success because unless you know what those mistakes are, you're unlikely. It becomes a lot harder to be successful. That comes with experience. You know, even those younger entrepreneurs that are successful, you can absolutely guarantee that they've surrounded themselves with people that have got experience. So go for it early. Don't be worried about making mistakes. Surround yourself with people that have been there, done it, made a success or a failure from it, and just go for it. Great advice, and I'm going to make absolutely sure that my uh teenage son listens to this segment of the podcast I think that will inspire him anyway Paul thank you so much for joining me today and sharing with me your experiences and your truly inspirational successes looking forward to seeing Adludio near the very top of the Sunday Times tech track next year brilliant thanks very much This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.